Some of you have realized we're coming to the end of this series. We have two weeks left this morning and next week, and you want to know what's coming next. So I'll just give you a quick preview of where we're headed when we wrap up the book of the 12. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we're going to jump into a series called Christmas with Isaiah, and we're going to look at the major prophet, Isaiah. We're going to look at some of the prophecies in Isaiah that point us forward to to Jesus and teach us about who Jesus is and why he was born. Why did he come to the earth? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Isaiah is going to help us make sense of that. And when we get through 2018 and we get into 2019, we're going to jump into a series called Believe, and it's going to be a walk through the Gospel of John. And we're going to go a lot slower in the Gospel of John than sometimes we go in other Sunday morning series. This is going to, is going to stretch out for quite a while. And we'll take a few breaks every now and then. We'll, we'll throw something in just to uh, make sure you don't get too uh, stuck in a rut with John. But we're going to take several months to walk through the Gospel of John. I'm excited about that series. But this morning, we've got to wrap up the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve, that is the title in the Jewish tradition given to the last 12 books of the Old Testament. The last 12 short books the Jews grouped together and they called them the Book of the Twelve. As Protestants, we separate them all out. We give them their own book. We put them at the end of our Old Testament and we call them the Minor Prophets. They're minor, not because they're unimportant or they're not uh, quite as weighty as the major prophets. They're just shorter. The books themselves are shorter. Uh, Zechariah is the least minor, minor prophet. Fourteen chapters. He takes the cake as the longest of all the minor prophets. And I'm just going to be honest with you. When I thought about this series, the book of Zechariah was the one book that made me think, maybe I won't do this sermon series. Fourteen chapters in one Sunday morning, that's a lot to cover And if you've ever read the book of Zechariah, there's some stuff that you read and it it just leaves you scratching your head wondering what in the world is going on. But we're going to dig through it this morning. It's an important book. It's a good book. And when we get to the end of it, it has some amazing, amazing prophecies that point us forward to Jesus. And so we're we're going to end this morning looking at those prophecies. Let me just say a couple of historical things before we jump in. This is all on the front page of your outline if you like to follow along with the notes. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are known as the post-exilic prophets, right? Post-exilic. They come after the exile. And so we'll get to our timeline in a minute, but these guys are after the people have been sent into exile, after they've been brought back. And Haggai and Zechariah actually are like Batman and Robin, Right? You can flip a coin and decide who's Batman and who's Robin. But these two guys go together. They were actually preaching at the exact same time. Not just in the same era or the same general place, but in the exact same place at the exact same time. Just about two months separated them. I told you last week, Haggai is kind of like your type A accountant. He's just kind of straightforward. He's to the point. There's not a whole lot that's flashy in Haggai. In fact, you read some Bible commentators that almost say Haggai is boring. They say, Haggai, you can find what Haggai says in every other book. There's nothing that makes him unique. He just sort of fits in and blends in. He's just sort of there. And then you come to Zechariah, and it's kind of like your crazy uncle that you have Thanksgiving lunch with. 
Some of you know the guy. You're looking forward to eating with him. You know when you sit down across from the table, he's just going to start talking about the wildest, craziest things you've ever heard. And you're going to wonder, how am I related to you? How are we in the same family? When you look at Haggai and Zechariah, you almost come away with that question. Haggai, very straightforward, to the point. Zechariah, really, really an interesting book with some things that are challenging to understand. Zechariah preached after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. We've talked about that. And I want you to understand that there were three waves of exiles who came back to Jerusalem. There was a group in 538 led by Zerubbabel, and they came to build the temple. In 458, Ezra brought a group back, and Ezra came to teach the law. And then in 444, Nehemiah brought a group back, and they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. Here's the timeline, just to make sense of all of this. This should be looking familiar, and I've added a little bit on to the end. Israel's history starts with the unified kingdom, all the tribes together, one king. First it was Saul, then it was David, then it was Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom gets split into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel up north, and you have the southern kingdom of Judah down south. They narrowly avoid a civil war, but they split the kingdom into two parts. From the get-go and throughout its history, the kings of Israel in the north were wicked. They chased after idols. They promoted idolatry as the national sort of faith and religion and practice of Israel. And God kept warning them. He sent prophets. He said, I'm going to send you out of your land, out of the promised land, into exile. And God did that. He kept that promise in 722 when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. and They took the people out of their land. The southern kingdom was kind of a mixed bag. They had some good kings every now and then, but a lot of the kings were really, really rotten. And God sent prophets to them, and he warned them. And eventually, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians marched against Jerusalem, against the southern kingdom, conquered that nation, and sent those people into exile. God's people kicked out of the promised land, almost like a reliving of the Garden of Eden. When God says to Adam and Eve, don't do this, and they do it. They disobey, and God says, you've got to leave. You cannot stay here. It's the same thing happening all over again with God's people in the promised land. He brings them in. He says, don't do this. Live this way. They rebel. They defy the Lord, and God says, you've got to go. You cannot stay in this place. After a number of years... Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles back. About 50,000 people came back to Jerusalem, and they came with the mission of rebuilding the temple. They made a good start, but they didn't finish it, and so that's when God sent Haggai. And Haggai's job was to kind of shoo them along and say, look, don't forget what God sent you to do. You've started, but you haven't finished. You've got to wrap this thing up. And they listened to Haggai. They did what he said. And two months later, here comes Zechariah. Right on the, on the coattails of Haggai, and we're going to talk about his message this morning. There were a few more waves that came after Zechariah, but that gives you some of the historical context. If you wanted to summarize the book of Zechariah in one sentence, here's how I would do it. Zechariah is a book about second chances and repentance. And those two things go together in the Bible. When God gives his people a second chance, he calls them to repentance. He doesn't just say, oh, no big deal, don't worry about it. We'll just sort of hit the reset button and go on as 
as, as life as normal or life as usual. Instead, what he says to the people is, I've warned you about this. Usually he disciplines them on some level, and then he says, you've got to turn from this stuff. You've got to leave those idolatrous, sinful, wicked ways behind, and you've got to follow me. And Zechariah is about second chances. It's about God calling his people to repentance. And I'd like you to take your Bible and look at Zechariah 1. Let's just read the first paragraph. It sort of gives you a, an overview of this idea of second chances and repentance. Zechariah 1, we'll read the first six verses. The Word of God says this, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. And the former prophets said this, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. That was their message. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers... Where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, the prophets told you that exile was coming, and it happened, didn't it? Just like they said it would happen. So, at the end of all of this process, they repented. The fathers repented, and they said, As the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. That's Israel's history in a nutshell. The people rebel and God says to them, knock it off. And he sends them prophets and they get warning after warning after warning and they don't listen. And God sends them into exile just like he promised it would happen. And he finally gets their attention and the people are back in the land and everything sort of had a a reset. And Zechariah is saying, you have got to seek the Lord. Return to the Lord. It's not enough just to return to this piece of real estate. It's not enough just to have a new temple. It's not enough just to have the priesthood reestablished. You must return to the Lord. You're getting a second chance, and God is calling his people to repentance. Let me tell you a few things about Zechariah the man, and then we'll jump in. What do we know about Zechariah? His name means the Lord remembers. That's what Zechariah means. That was an important message to the people before he ever opened his mouth. Because as these people had spent decade after decade in exile, they would have been tempted every single day to wonder, does God remember us? Does God remember his promise to us? Does God remember all the things he said he was going to do for us? Or has he forgotten? And here comes a prophet, and his name means the Lord remembers. He has not forgotten his promise. He was the son of Berechiah. We just read that, the grandson of Iddo. We don't know a whole lot about these guys except that this was a priestly family and they had come back to the land with Zerubbabel. You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. So we know just a little bit about his family. Zechariah 2.4 suggests that he was a young prophet. He was a young guy. He was not one of these guys who had lived in Israel and been sent into exile and lived all those 70 years in exile and then come back, but he was someone who had been born outside of the promised land, and he got to come back, and he got to see this temple built, and he was a young prophet. Now, all of that stuff aside, 
What does he have to say? What's the message of this book? For all the debated parts about Zechariah, and there's plenty of debated parts, almost every commentator I read, every Bible commentary I read said there's three sections to the book. There's a series of visions. There's eight visions. And then in the middle, there's two sermons where he just preaches to the people. And then at the very, very end, there's two oracles that talk about the future. So you got eight visions right out of the gate. Then you got a couple of sermons in the middle. Then you got a couple of oracles or prophecies at the end of the book. And so we're just going to talk about each of those sections. Section number one, God will give his people a second chance through the temple. Through the temple. This is Zechariah 1 to 6. It's the eight visions that start the book. And this is the part of the book where a lot of people get lost. If you're just in your regular Bible reading and you go through the book of Zechariah and you come through these first six chapters, you almost feel like you just went to a Pink Floyd concert. You know, like or a Grateful Dead concert, or something psychedelic and wild and trippy, and you read these chapters and you think, I don't have any idea what this guy's talking about. I mean, there are some, there's some visions that are kind of boring, like there's a vision where a guy gets a tape measure and measures a city. But then there's another vision with wicked women in a basket being carried by storks. And you read it and you're like, I, I don't know what that means. I don't have any, Jesus didn't talk about that. Women in a basket with storks. I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to make sense of that. In all of these visions, in some way, shape, or form, he comes back to the temple. He comes back to the temple. So they're, they're wild visions. Like, Do you remember the movie uh, Willy Wonka, the original, with Gene Wilder? You remember the part where they get to the, they get to the factory and they go in and they see the, the big room and the chocolate river and all that, and then he gets them on the boat And if you've never watched this movie, the middle part of this little scene is terrifying. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody's happy. Augustus just, you know, fell in the thing and gets sucked up the tube. And that's kind of comical. It's not scary or or intense or anything. It's just kind of funny. But then they get on this boat and they start going into this tunnel. And it's, it's crazy. Like if you're watching it with your little kids, you feel like, I need to cover their eyes. This is just wild things flashing on the screen and he's screaming and yelling and everybody's terrified. I mean, it's just wild. That's like the first part of Zechariah here in these visions. But in all of them, you got to sort of put the weirdness aside and drill down deep. And all of them, we keep coming back to the temple. And in each vision, God sends an angel to help him make sense of the vision. This is helpful. You don't have to guess. You just have to sort of listen to the angel talking to Zechariah saying, this is what the vision is about. I thought about trying to cover all these. We don't have time to do it. So I just want to talk about the most important vision, and it's Zechariah chapter 3. So take your Bible and look at Zechariah 3. We'll just read a few verses, and then we'll talk about it. Zechariah 3, verse 1 to 5. Then he showed me. In all these visions, he sees something. He showed me Joshua, the high priest. Remember, they just got brought back to the promised land. They just built this brand new temple. Ezra came back to teach the law, so they have the priesthood reestablished. Joshua is the high priest in real life and in the vision. And he says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan 
standing at his right hand to accuse him. So in this vision, you've got the high priest, and you have Satan, and you have the angel of the Lord who seems to be God himself in some sense. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Some say, isn't this a burning stick plucked from the fire? And he's talking about Joshua, the high priest. He's a a burning stick that I pulled out of the fire. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know the high priest was supposed to wear clean garments, everything white. It had to be spotless. It had to be a a picture of, of his worthiness to represent the people. And here he is with these filthy garments, and Satan is accusing him, pointing out how nasty and filthy and sinful and wicked he is. And God says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. This man is a brand plucked from the fire. Verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. So you realize these filthy garments are a picture of his sin. They're not just clothes, but they're a picture that Joshua is a sinful man. I've taken that away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And you realize it's not just new clothes. It's not just clean clothes. He's giving this high priest righteousness. He's taken his sin, and he's giving him righteousness. And I said, verse 5, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is an amazing vision. Zechariah is just sort of minding his own business, and then he sees this thing. God shows him this thing. And there's the high priest who's supposed to be wearing spotless garments, and he's filthy. He's filthy. And here's Satan, the accuser, accusing the high priest. And what he's saying is to the Lord, look, it's great that you brought these people back to the land and all, but look at how filthy your high priest is. That's the one that's going to represent the people? He's filthy. He's a sinner. You can't have a sinful person representing the people. It's not how it works. And the Lord speaks up. And this is what's fascinating. The Lord doesn't say, oh, no, he's not filthy. The Lord doesn't say, oh, no, he's clean. The Lord says, look, I picked him out of the fire. I know who he is. I know that he deserves to die, but I've pulled this one out of the fire, and I'm going to take away his iniquity, his filthy garments, and I'm going to clothe him with pure vestments. And my people in the city that I have chosen, did you notice he said that in the vision? He said, I have chosen Jerusalem. This is my plan, and they will have a high priest who was qualified to represent them, who's qualified to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. You say, well, I guess that means Joshua was the one who was going to represent them. No, Joshua is one pointing you forward to the high priest to come. If you keep keep reading and you look at the end of verse 8, Zechariah 3, verse 8, the very end, the Lord says this, I will bring my servant the branch. In the Old Testament, when you read branch and it's capitalized, what it's saying is Messiah, the promised one. Someone who's going to be a a shoot off of David's line. 
I'm going to bring the branch. And look at verse 9, at the end of verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God says to Satan, I know how filthy they are. I know how filthy Joshua is. I know how filthy the rest of them are. The land is filled with iniquity, but I have a plan. I'm going to bring this branch, and through him, I'm going to remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. You understand what he's talking about, right? I mean, he's not spelling it out in incredible detail, but what he's saying is the Messiah will die for the people. He will take their iniquity, they will get his righteousness, and I will cleanse this land from iniquity in a single moment. No more sacrifice year after year after year after year, but in a single day, we're going to deal with sin once and for all. It's talking about the cross. You and I have the benefit of looking back in hindsight, but in Zechariah's day, they were looking forward in faith. The connection to the temple is this. God set this temple up. God brought them back to the land. He chose this people. He chose this place. He put the high priest in the position he was in, and God is saying this. You keep doing the things that you're supposed to be doing at the temple. Keep offering the sacrifices. It's not because those sacrifices save you. It's because those sacrifices are pointing you forward to the one that I'm going to send, the branch who will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. We look back in faith. They're looking forward in faith. And God is saying, I'm giving you a second chance, and it's all pictured right here at the temple. Section number two. God's going to give his people a second chance through his word. Through his word. This is Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8. Each sermon begins with a similar phrase. If you look at Zechariah 7, 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, and he tells you when. And if you flip over to chapter 8, it says, The word of the Lord of hosts came. So twice, the word of the Lord comes to him, and he speaks. And these are the two sermons in the middle of the book. The first sermon, chapter 7, is Zechariah telling the people, you had better keep God's word. And the backstory is kind of interesting. Look at Zechariah 7.3. There's a guy that comes to Zechariah and he has a question. And the question is this. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? This is the story. When Nebuchadnezzar took the people out of Jerusalem, sent them into exile, they started a new fast. They did it every year on the fifth month. That was the month they were kicked out of the promised land. They instituted a new fast. They weren't commanded to do it in scripture. They just did it themselves. It's okay. And they said, every year on this month, we're going to fast and we're going to remember why God kicked us out of the promised land. Now they're back in the promised land. God's brought them back. They're in Jerusalem. There's tens of thousands of them. They have a temple. And this person comes to Zechariah and says, hey, should we still keep that fast, fifth month? Should we, should we keep that thing going or should we not? What do we do? And what Zechariah says is this. That fast is fine, but that's just a man-made thing. What you really need to be concerned about is listening to the Word of God. You need to stop being so concerned about your own traditions in your own celebrations or your own fasts or whatever. And you need to listen to the word of God because that's why you got kicked out of the promised land in the first place. Look how he wraps it up in Zechariah 8. He's talking about the same thing. Zechariah 8, verse 15. 
Again, I've purposed in those days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm, I'm going to do good things for you. Don't be afraid. Verse 16, these are the things that you should do. He doesn't say anything in here about keeping the fast on the fifth month, but this is what he says. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Everything in that list is straight out of the Old Testament. It's straight out of God's law. And what he's saying to the people is, look, I have a good plan for you. I kicked you out of the promised land because you refused to listen to my word, but I brought you back, and I'm going to do good things for you. I don't need you to worry about your man-made feasts and traditions and all that stuff. I need you to listen to my word. That's why you got kicked out of the land in the first place, and now that you're back, you have got to listen to my word. We talked about this last week with Haggai. It is not enough to be at the right place at the right time with the right people. That was true in Haggai and Zechariah's day, and it's true today in 2018 in Odessa. You're here at church on a Sunday morning, right place, right time, right people. Great. Forget the tradition of things. Forget the routine of things. Forget the ritual of things. The question is, are you going to listen to God's word? He's giving these people a second chance, and he's saying to them, you lost the first chance because you would not listen to my word, and now that you get a second chance, I'm calling you to repentance, and I'm calling you to listen to my word. So they're going to have a second chance through the temple and through his word, Last section of the book, point number three, God will give his people a second chance through his son. Through his son. This is the most beautiful part of the book. There's a couple of repeated phrases in 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 that you just need to latch on to. Look at Zechariah 9, 1. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord... And if you flip over to Zechariah 12, verse 1, you see the same phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. Twice you read that phrase. There's this burden of God's word that comes to the prophet. And throughout this last section of the book, at least 20 times you see the phrase, on that day. Just a few chapters at the end of this book, over and over again, he says, on that day. In all of those instances, he's wanting you to look forward. There is a day coming. There is something in the future. There's something we're looking forward to. On this day, this is what God is going to do. He's going to judge his enemies, and he's going to send a Savior. And I'll be honest with you. I've studied the book of Zechariah as I went through and read it this week. It is amazing to read what this prophet wrote hundreds of years before Jesus ever was born. Hundreds of years before Jesus had a public ministry, hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross, it's almost like, because he is, Zechariah is looking into the future. God is showing him what's going to happen. And he just, he, he describes Jesus in his ministry, in his death, just step by step by step. We're not even going to look at all the, all the references, but I just want you to look at these references. Take your Bible out and let's just work through these scriptures together. You get a second chance through God's son, this one that God is going to send. Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You say, ah, that sounds like the triumphal entry. I've read that before. You have read it before. It's right in the New Testament. The New Testament authors go back to this and they say this prophecy that God would send somebody bringing righteousness and salvation and he would ride into this city on, a, on the colt of a donkey. It happened. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it happened. Look at Zechariah chapter 10 verse 2. He says, The household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like a sheep, and they're afflicted. Why? They lack a shepherd. They have false prophets, and they have diviners, and they have all this mumbo-jumbo. What they need is a shepherd. Jesus, just days after he rides a colt into Jerusalem, sits down to have a meal with his disciples. John chapter 10, he looks at them, and he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They don't listen to diviners. They don't listen to false prophets. They listen to me. And the good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. Zechariah says the problem is these people need a shepherd. Look at chapter 11, verse 12 and verse 13. This is Zechariah speaking to the people. Then I, Zechariah, said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. In other words, pay me. You've been listening to my preaching, pay me something. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, don't keep it. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to them in the house of the Lord to the potter. He asked for his wages. They paid him the wages of a slave, what it would cost to buy a a, a cheap, worthless slave, 30 pieces of silver. That's what he was worth to them. That's how they esteemed the prophet. You're worth 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said, take it and throw it right back in their face. You read in the New Testament that one of Jesus' closest friends betrayed him for how much? 30 pieces of silver. That's what Jesus was worth to him, 30 pieces of silver. And he he didn't end up keeping that money. He threw that money back, not because he wanted to fulfill the Scripture or understood that, because God's Word is true. And God is describing right here not just what's going to happen with Zechariah, but what's going to happen with Jesus in his betrayal. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And I just want you to stop right there. Who is the one speaking? Who is the one that would be in a position to pour out grace and to pour out mercy in response to their prayers? It's the Lord, right? The Lord says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pour out grace for their pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps 
over a firstborn. In the authors of the New Testament, the gospel writers, they look at Jesus hanging on the cross and they see this Roman soldier stab him in the side and they say, God's word said that was going to happen. How is in the world is it possible that God's people would look on God who they pierced? I mean, it wasn't even fathomable how that would come about. How did it come about? In the God-man, Jesus, hanging on the cross, pierced by the spear of a Roman. They will look on him and they will mourn. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There's going to be a fountain open. This fountain's going to make you clean. You're dirty. You're just like Joshua. Your garments are filthy. You're covered in iniquity. And God's going to open this fountain that will make you clean. And what does the hymn writer say? William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. He got it. He's not talking about a a bath. He's talking about the blood of Jesus that makes you clean. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The gospel writers describe Jesus in the garden when he's arrested and when they take him. And it says everyone leaves him. They all run for the hills. They all tuck tail and run. And they say it was a fulfillment of this prophecy. It happened just the way Zechariah said it was going to happen. One more, Zechariah 14, verse 9. After all of these prophecies, he says this. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. You get to the New Testament and you read in the epistles this description of what Jesus did on the cross. And we read in the book of Philippians, for example, that at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Zechariah said was going to happen is going to happen. All of these prophecies, one after another, almost like he's looking at it in live time, in real action, in the moment, they all come to pass. And we look at this last promise and we say, someday it will happen. Every knee will bow and Jesus will be Lord over all. He will return, not as a baby in a manger, not as a savior suffering on a cross, but as the king who will rule over all kings. You come to the end of this list of prophecies and you say, what do we do with that? What does that mean for me in Odessa, Texas, 2018? I just want to give you two simple thoughts. Very, very simple. Number one. Embrace a second chance through Jesus. This is for those of you in the room who have never trusted in Jesus. You have never turned from your sin. Like Zechariah says, seek the Lord and you've sought him through Jesus Christ. You've never done that. And my guess is that if you're here and you've never done that, you probably have been in church some. I mean, maybe this is your very first Sunday to ever come to church, but I bet it's not. I bet you've been in church before. And the typical mindset of the typical person in a typical church in the United States on any given Sunday, when you start talking about a second chance, is the the person's going to say this, you're right, I need a second chance, I really need to get my act together. I really need to, I really need to straighten up. I I really need to do my part. I mean, I'm I'm not a perfect person, I really need to, to really 
get right with God. There's things I need to do to get right with God. Look, in all of those thoughts, what you're saying is, I need to fix this. And what Zechariah is saying is, you can't fix it. Jesus fixed it. He is the fulfillment of this book. All of the visions, the temple, all of this stuff about you're getting a second chance through the temple. What does Jesus say when he starts walking around preaching? He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. He's the fulfillment of the temple. It's all pointing forward to him. What does the Gospel of John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You get a second chance through God's Word. That's not some abstract printed book. That's Jesus, the living Word of God. All these prophecies pointing us straight to the cross, they were all fulfilled. The second chance is not you straightening up. It's accepting what Jesus did on your behalf, trusting in His righteousness and confessing your sin and turning away from it. That's how you embrace a second chance. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You receive it as a gift. So number one, embrace a second chance through Jesus. Number two, celebrate a second chance through Jesus. And this is for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, who have received that gift, who have put our faith in him. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but on Sunday mornings, this is all we talk about and sing about. I don't have anything new. I'm not here to give you five tips for a better this or four suggestions for a better that or here's how you can have your best whatever now. We're here to say we are sinful people. God promised to make it right through his son and he kept his promise. He sent Jesus. He lived for us. He earned the righteousness that we need. He died on the cross for our sins. He took our iniquity. He removed it in a single day. And we are restored to relationship with the Father through him. That's all we have to talk about. That's all that we have to sing about. When you read the book of Revelation, this glimpse into the future, they're singing and they're still telling stories. And it all centers around Jesus, celebrating who he is and what he did on our behalf. And so we want to do that this morning. I'd like you to bow. We're going to pray.